Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And listen, we need to be men of faith. We need to be men of the Word. We need to be men of prayer. We need to be men who hear the Lord and obey the Lord. And if we're not that, how do we think we're going to raise the next generation of men that are that? Oh, our wives will do it. We have other responsibilities. No, listen, our wives can't be what God has called us to be. It takes courage to be a man or a woman of faith. It takes courage to completely trust the Lord in all ways for all things. Let's listen in as Pastor Sam explores this idea in part two of his message, Is Anything Too Hard for the Lord? Starting in Matthew 8:26, And may we be encouraged. Why? And I think the Lord would be saying that to some of us today. Why? What are you thinking? Why are you so fearful? Why? Well, that's what he says to them. Why? Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? I like that. Their faith is in the right place and it's not a whole lot of faith. But he's saying, listen, let your faith drive out fear. Why? If faith doesn't drive out fear, fear will, well, it'll drive out faith. You can not go on for too long with these two things both occupying the same heart and mind and space. One is going to overcome the other. Let it be faith. And so he says, why are you fearful, you of little faith? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. That word for rebuke means he muzzled them. He silenced them. I like that. The waves cease. The wind ceases. And there is this absolute calm. And in fact, we read earlier there was a great tempest. Now we read of a great calm. And of course, we all experience calm after the storm has ceased, after the winds and waves are gone. But Philippians promises us what Jesus was experiencing. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a promise that if we trust him in the midst of the storm, we would see him do wonders. We, we could trust him and, and get this. He doesn't say, I'll explain it to you or it'll make sense to you or you'll figure it all out. He says it's a peace that passes understanding. It's internal. It doesn't always make sense. Certainly won't make sense to others when they look on and they're all freaking out and you're kind of just relaxed. That happened to the Apostle Paul. He was in the midst of a storm and he had warned these guys, hey, I don't think it's a good idea to set sail. In fact, the Lord told me we shouldn't do it. And they're like, hey, you're a prisoner. So they get in the boat and they begin to sail. And as they're going, sure enough, the boat is being broken up by the wind and the waves. I mean, and then they begin to fear for their lives. They're throwing everything overboard. Finally, they say, we better just kill the prisoners and, and you know, swim for shore. And, and Paul stands up and says, hey, I told you this was going to happen. But it ain't just I told you so. And he says, the same Lord that told me this was going to happen now told me we're all going to survive. There will be a loss of the ship, but no, no lives will be lost. No lives lost. Get this. This time they believe him. Why? Because there's some about someone who's at peace in the midst of the storm and can stand up with authority and say, we're going to get through this. We're going to be fine. The Lord's going to come through for us. 
Listen, if you're a dad, you've got to be that guy in your home. Your kids are watching, and if you're freaking out, how insecure do you think they're going to be? I mean, your dad, that's like when they're little and you're big, they, they don't know the difference between you and God. They just know, you know, and then gradually they learn, okay, you're not God, that's for sure. God's far bigger and far greater. But, but even in the midst of that, they still look up to you and they want to be like you. And, and listen, we need to be men of faith. We need to be men of the word. We need to be men of prayer. We need to be men who hear the Lord and obey the Lord. And if we're not that, how do we think we're going to raise the next generation of men that are that? Oh, our wives will do it. We have other responsibilities. No, listen, our wives can't be what God has called us to be. And so... Hey, if you're not a father, you're thinking about getting married and becoming one. No, it is a serious deal to raise kids. It's a big thing to be responsible for young lives. But don't let that discourage you. Just go into it knowing what it is. Well, in any case, he rebukes, muzzles, calms the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled. Earlier they marveled at his teaching. Now they marvel at his power saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who can it be that just his word? Hey, Moses had a rod, the rod of God. And when he had water problems, he used the rod of God. Elijah had a mantle and he used that in the very same way. But when Jesus had problems, when Jesus was confronted with situations or trials or, hey, he simply spoke the word. And he's able to do that today and willing to do that today. Well, finally, we come to our, our last little snapshot. And, and there in verse 28, it says, When he had come to the other side, the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so no one could pass that way. The storm on the sea was a crisis from without. Now, this is a crisis within. And there were a couple of things you need to know for, for this to really impact you the way that God would have it impact you. First of all, you need to know that this situation was real and not imagined. Some have suggested that it's just superstition, this whole idea of demon possession. No, it's supernatural, not superstition. Throughout the scripture, we find people demon-possessed and Jesus dealing and others dealing with that, that issue and, and that problem. In fact, we're told of Judas that Satan himself entered into him. But, but a word of encouragement and hopefully hope for you. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Bible says you are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Why is that important? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. Then there was a temple. But there's no longer that temporary tabernacle nor that temple. The Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God resides within us. And greater, he says, is he who is in you than he who's in the world. It is a direct reference to the spiritual battle and warfare that takes place. Now, I do not believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. I think we can be oppressed and we can be impressed negatively by them. They can make suggestions to us, but they can never possess us. Why? We're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. In fact, you know in Ephesians where it tells us not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I use this as an example because in Chico, we're way more familiar with drunkenness than demon possession. It's just a lifestyle out there on the streets. And when someone's drunk, they are controlled by the alcohol. They stammer and slur their speech. They stumble in their, their walk, in their steps. Everything, the way they see, the way they function, you can tell they're inebriated. You can see and tell when someone's drunk. And he's saying in the very same way, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if to be drunk means to be controlled by alcohol, to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then demon possessed, that means to be controlled by the demons. Did they have control of this guy? Was it absolute? You got to know it was. This was a horrific and terrifying situation. Side note, but I know for some of you it'll come up, and so you want to you wanna answer, I'm sure, if you have the question. Mark and Luke tell us there was one man. Matthew tells us there were two. Don't let that be a stumbling block to you. It is an apparent contradiction, and you can find many of those in Scripture. What Mark and Luke don't say is that there was only one. What they do is they focus in on, no doubt, the most violent, the most threatening, the most vocal of these two men. But, but, but Matthew, for his own intents and purposes, he's giving us information we don't get from the others. Now, you need to know this doesn't mess with the inspiration of Scripture. No, it's God-breathed and, and preserved and protected and provided for us. But God allowed men to share from their personal backgrounds and their, with, hey, they, they had an audience they were trying to reach. They, they had some things that they wanted to get across, so much so. Here's an example for you, that when John writes about the most important event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he thinks it's important that he mentions that when they heard the tomb was empty, he and Peter raced to the tomb and John won the race. Now, if that doesn't tell us that, that God allows men to get their thing in, I mean, can you imagine? You're writing for God. It's the most important event in all history. And it's like, yeah, we were racing. And by the way, Peter lost, man. I beat him. And why? These guys are competitive. And God lets us see that competitive nature. Why? Well, he knows some of us are going to be like that. And he wants us to see how silly it looks on men of God and women of God to be competing with one another in carnal ways or in spiritual ways for that matter. Well, in any case, apparent contradictions are just that. There's no real contradiction. In fact, I had a book some years ago, it was called Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. And I found that if I sat down with the passages and I looked at them and I just used common sense, well, then it doesn't hurt that the Bible says the Holy Spirit is your teacher. So maybe I'm giving common sense more than it deserves. But just using the brain God gave me and knowing the Holy Spirit is enlightening and teaching me, ordinarily I could look and say, well, it's probably this. And I got in the habit of doing that before I went to the book. And I found out almost without exception that, that the solution was, it was straightforward. And it's something that if you explained it, anyone would look at and say, yeah, that makes sense. And we don't want to be afraid of those things. We don't want people to say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. You know what I do when someone says that? I say, show me one. I have yet to see someone pull out a Bible. I mean, usually people who say that don't even have a Bible. I'm like, where did you get that? Well, somebody told me. Who were they? I don't remember. Well, I know it's true because, hey, strangers never lie. And uh, <laughs> here's the bottom line. Apparent contradictions are just that. Alleged discrepancies, just that. Were there two? You know there were. Matthew's telling us there were two. 
The others focus on the one. But, but get this, demon possession, controlled. These demons had taken up residence within this man and they were controlling him so much so. Well, these men, they lived in the tombs. We're told by the other gospel accounts, or in the other gospel accounts, these men ran naked around the tombs. They weren't the kind of people you're going to take your youth group to witness to. They're naked, they're violent, they're vile, they're demon-possessed. And in the midst of it, Jesus comes on the scene. And note what happens. Suddenly they cry out. They cry out. Who? Some have suggested the two men. I would suggest the demons. Oh yeah, the men's vocal cords, but the demons speaking. Why? They controlled him. They could speak through him. The demons say, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? See, this is why you know it was demons speaking. There's no way this guy would know who he was. Not even his own disciples had figured this out yet. But the demons knew because they were created by him and for him. And they, with Satan, had rebelled against him and had been cast out of heaven. No, they knew him, and they knew he had authority over them, and they knew the time of torment was certainly coming. And what they're going to say is, hey, it's not yet. It's not time. Hey, this isn't right. Don't, don't do this. Not yet. Not now. So they cried out saying, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, the Bible says the demons believe and tremble. They know who Jesus is. They know what he came to do. And they know that he has absolute authority over them. Oh, by the way, I mentioned, and I, I got to bring this back because it's too important. While I don't believe there is a scriptural basis for believers, Christians, being demon-possessed, certainly we can be oppressed. And you know, the Bible says that Satan, and then of course his demons, who transform themselves into angel of light, angels of light, that they can accuse. Why? Because Satan's an accuser of the brethren. That they can intimidate, that they can lie. Why? Because Satan's the father of lies. And they're representing him. I had an interesting experience while I was out of town. Well, it's actually when I came back. I had a series of voicemails. Ordinarily, I'll have one of the secretaries or one of the other pastors pick up my messages, but I was running, I don't know, too many things too quick before I left, and I, I neglected to do it. And, and so I get back, and I, you know, I've got like 260 you know, emails and all these voicemails, and I'm thinking, I really should have had someone look at this. But I get this message, and the guy's like, I'm having a problem. I just want you to call me back. It's with somebody. And, and you know, but, you know, I didn't call him back because I didn't get the message. And then I got another call from him, and he's like, hey, now you and me are having a bit of a problem. And he starts accusing me of all these things. By the third call, Calvary's a cult, and you don't know the Lord. And, I mean, I'm not kidding. This guy is just accusing me right and left. Well, he was a little sheepish when I called him and said, hey, I want to really apologize for not getting back to you. I've been out of town. I didn't get your calls. Would have been good to ask the secretary why I wasn't returning him. She would have told you I was gone. Well, but here, here's my point. I think this guy really is a Christian. And he was going through a real trial. He was really frustrated. He called me for help. I wasn't there. So pretty soon he's turning on me. He's accusing me of worse things than the person that he called me to get help with. And I'm thinking, Lord, isn't that what happens? Isn't that what we do? We begin to imagine something about someone else and we begin to actually entertain that as if it were reality. And sometimes we even say it as if it were reality. And that's working for the enemy. You've got to see that. And so there are times where we are oppressed and that we are lied to. If you're, 
you know, over 40. You remember those cartoons where it had the little angel on one side and had the little demon on the other side? And while I don't think that's absolutely a biblical, scriptural picture, it's not far from what happens. The enemy does speak to us. And you need to know that when Peter shares that wonderful revelation from heaven, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Man, Peter, you've got it. The father's spoken to you personally, a revelation from heaven. And, and then Jesus begins to explain to Peter what it means that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ. Messiah, Savior, that's all about the cross. And he begins to tell Peter that. And as he shares it, Peter says, far be it from you. This will never happen to you. Now listen, Peter was listening to the Lord. He heard from the Father. He shared the truth. And then he started listening to the devil. And he shared his philosophy. No cross necessary. No, the cross was necessary. It was essential. It is the very core and heart and at the core and heart of what it means to be a Christian, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Our forgiveness, our cleansing, our life, our hope is all about the cross. So when Peter began to say, no way, no cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He recognized where that was coming from, and I think he looked right through and right past Satan, and he said, or right through and past Peter, excuse me, and said, Satan, I know what you're doing. And so here's the deal. You can pride yourself on your knowledge and revelation and understanding, but you're still capable of getting it wrong, listening to the enemy, getting mixed up, speaking for the enemy. So we want to be careful that that doesn't happen to us. It doesn't mean we can be controlled or possessed or manipulated, but we can be lied to. We can be intimidated. We, we can let the accuser of the brethren accuse others to us or accuse us to ourselves or accuse, well, even God to us. Well, they come and they say, what do we have to do with you, Jesus? That's a good question. The Bible says light and darkness have nothing in common. That Christ and Belial, they have nothing in common. What do we have to do with you, you son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? And a good way off, we read, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. They knew he had the power. They thought they saw what was coming. And he said to them, go. It's amazing. Hey, a storm, life-threatening. He just says, be still. And it's a done deal. Here he just says, go, and, and the demons flee. By the way, the other gospel accounts tell us it was a legion, or they identified themselves as a legion. Roman legion, 6,000 men. We don't know for sure how many men, but we know there were 2,000 um, of the swine. So he says, go, and when they'd come out, they went into the herd of swine. Suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Now, we don't know if this was some kind of a mass swine suicide or if this was the, the demons forcing them off the cliff. Why? The Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So if they wanted to be there, maybe it was just to destroy or maybe it was to be embodied. We do know that this was, in fact, the first case of deviled ham in Scripture and I couldn't, I couldn't resist. 
but they they're possessed by the devils, they run off the cliff, they perish in the water. And then note, those who kept them fled and went to the city, told everyone, or told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. The whole city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to depart from that region. You would think such a radical miracle coming, and as the other accounts tell us, they came and they saw this guy, these guys, no doubt, clothed and, and in their right minds, and, and, and they, they, they don't fall at the feet of Jesus and worship Jesus and say, who gave such power, or who is he, or what kind of man? No, they say, could you just hit the road? Could you leave our territory? And we're going to find more and more the Samaritans won't want him to pass through there. And, and more and more that the doors begin to close around our Lord. It's not what you think. You'd think that the more he did, the, the greater the numbers following him. No, gradually it would get down to just his disciples. And then it would be just, just a few women and, and a disciple at the foot of the cross. And listen, they ask him to leave, but something else happens. It's not here, and I want to conclude with this because, well, I, I like happy endings. And there is one here. And, and there's some good instruction for us to take with us today as well. This, this spokesman, perhaps representing both of them, but certainly representing himself, this man who had been demon-possessed, says, Lord, let me go with you. His desire now, as was that of the scribe and, and so many others, let me be your disciple, your follower. I just want to be with you where you are. I want to be with you. But Jesus says, no, go home and tell him what wonderful things God has done for you. It's important that we grow in the Lord. It's important that we know the Lord. But Jesus says, you have had such a, a, an amazing experience. I want you to go where they know you best. Oh, they'll hear it there. You see, and when, and when we come and say, man, the Lord's changed me. The Lord has transformed me. The Lord has freed me. The Lord has, man, he says, go home and tell them what wonderful things the Lord has done for you. And that's my encouragement to each and every one of us. As the Lord is working in your life, bear witness to it. Go to those who know you best and say, the Lord is doing these things and it's awesome and I want you to know. Go home. But you know what? He didn't just go home. He did go home, no doubt, as Jesus instructed him. We're told he went throughout all the capitalists. That means ten cities. This guy, without any... Hey, I want you to, by the way, after you go home, hit these other cities. No, he's like, hey, I've told everybody at home, i got to go tell somebody else. And when God has truly worked in your life and is working through your life, you can't wait for people to know about that. So my encouragement to you, if you're in the midst of it, maybe going through a trial, a tribulation, a personal storm, as it were, just hear his words, be still, recognize that he's there with you and he'll take care of you and hey, death will be an appointment for you, appointed unto man once to die, but not, not judgment for you, not if you know the Lord, you're, you're just going to be with him in glory, but, but appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment, if you don't know the Lord, you're going to want to get that right today. And you don't want to go too fast. If you don't really understand what's going on, you don't want to just say, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Count the cost. There is one. But you don't want to go too slow if he's calling you. You want to say, okay, Lord, I, I get it. And I'm giving my life to you today. And I'm going to walk with you and grow in you. And I want to go tell the world, starting at home, what wonderful things God has done for me. Don't, don't run ahead. Don't lag behind. 
Don't get fearful in the midst of the storms. And, and just know, hey, if you're battling even from within, hey, we all got a flesh. We all got to deal with that. Even though the enemy may not be able to work from the inside out, our flesh is still warring with the spirit. And so each of us can apply something here today, something practical, something personal, something life-changing. I was once told to think of fear, F-E-A-R, as false evidence appearing real. And when we are full of fear, danger appears very real. Whether that be the fear of what it would mean to give one's life over completely to Jesus, the fear of circumstances that are way out of our control, or fear of the evil one, Satan. Fear can freeze us in our tracks and make it difficult for us to be used by God. But Jesus, our Lord who loves us, wants his children to know that all fear is false evidence. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.